You're listening to How You Create with Ben Terry and Joshua John Marie. Last time we put out an episode, it was what? Almost end of April? Mm, I don't know. I actually think we did one in May before before I left to start traveling again. It's been it's been some time since we've released uh, an episode, a photo story, a link. A we link did dump. we did ten episodes, and then we took a month off, uh, mainly because we got vaccinated. The world was opening back up. Um, yeah, our last one was May fifth with Mark Saab. Wow. Okay, that wasn't as long ago, long ago as I thought, but yeah, we're we're back. Yeah, we're we're kicking it. We got another episode today. We've got some other ones already lined up yeah. and planned. So we're looking forward to it. I actually enjoyed taking a step back and kind of thinking through uh, what we kind of want to do next with the podcast. Um, so yeah, I've enjoyed it. It's been a good refresh for me. I've been traveling almost every week you hit during every, the break. You hit, uh, you hit every COVID hotspot. I went West Coast. I went South to Miami. I went to Hawaii. Man, you Just, got a nice little tan to you too. Yeah. Went to Hilton Head. Wow. Yeah. You know what I if did? I, if I could have you know a reason to travel. You know what I did? What did you do? I was in Louisville. Man, born and bred. Born and... I was what, born did in, you, what did you do with the like the extra time? <laughs> I actually am curious. Uh, I started a new project that I'm working with. Um, I'm working with a local magazine on. So okay. I've been working on that. Um, Can you yeah. talk about it? Like what is the new project? I'm not sure. It's a it's a portrait based project. Um, it'll be releasing later this fall. Okay, um, as one of their magazine issues. That's cool. I'm not sure how much I can talk about it or not, so I'm just not going to go into detail. So yeah, but it's happening. Wow, that's some great hype, though. It, it, it you was, probably can't uh, talk about it, but it's actually better for the project that you say you can't talk about it because now we're all like on the edges. Of, I'm, I'm literally on the edge of my seat, curious what this is, because I don't even know about this. This is um, great. So I don't want to talk it up too much because I still got to finish it. But yeah, uh, it was it was really cool to be selected and, and to be um, asked to work on it. So stay tuned. Excited so for it. was this like a like an open call or yeah, how did this like come about? Yeah, it was an open call for photographers to submit um, to just work on this uh, essentially a uh, influence chain, uh, portrait project. So, um, the way that it's going to work, they've chosen a handful of photographers, um, to connect with groups of people and they're going to create this piece that's going to showcase almost this chain of influence throughout the city. Hmm. Um, so I'm just, uh, I'm a small piece of the project. So I'm really excited to see how, uh, the project comes together as a collective. Yeah. That sounds awesome. Well, you all always have a bunch of projects. I'm always going. Um, a lot of, a lot of, I usually ask this in um, interview questions, but do you prefer, if you were a plate spinner, would you prefer spinning only like two or three plates really well? Um, or would you prefer spinning like 20 or 50 plates and they're okay and you're keeping them all up and maybe a couple are dropping? Yeah. I, I feel like I'm in transition. Yeah. Uh, maybe two years ago, I would have wanted, wanted to be the 20 plate spinner. Mm-hmm. And I, I'd like to get to a place where I can spin two, two or three plates really well. And why is that? Um, I'm, just, I'm just finding the benefit of uh, having a smaller number of things to do and doing them really well and seeing them. Uh, you're smiling because I know you're on the opposite and you're going to say something. Oh, I'm not on the opposite. 
Well, I I, I think I've just found more enjoyment in watching something go from start to finish versus seeing projects start, not finish, and kind of just go through Mm. that wave. Yeah. So you would like to see an end date to your projects? I like to, yeah, I crave to see things come to an end and be able to say, man, that went really well. And like, I worked on it. And move on. Yeah. 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 I get that. So how do you, you're trying to focus. How do you, what's your secrets to avoiding burnout? Like, do you feel burnt out? And that's why you're, and that's why you're like trying to focus more on a couple of things. Um, I think two things, accountability when you're working on things collectively with people, or if they just know that you're working on it, Mm -hmm. uh, it kind of helps you, um, stay on track for whatever project you're supposed to be finished. So the people that I've, uh, been working on this project with, or I've shared this project with, they've been checking in on like, you know, how's it going? Are you keeping up with people you're supposed to connect with and, and just the flow of the project. Um, whereas I know when I'm burnt out, when I'm just disconnected from community, I'm just trying to do it all on my mm-hmm. own. Uh, I'm the worst at accepting a helping hand. Like I just, yeah. it is just not my groove, but, mm. um, yeah, that's, that's kind of, I can, I can tell when I'm, I'm getting on that burnout, uh, rhythm when I'm kind of disconnecting from everyone and I'm overwhelmed by the things I should be doing, mm-hmm. but I'm spending time being overwhelmed. So do you, so I'm kind of curious, is your full, do you feel like your full-time job helps enable your artistic practice outside of work? Or do you feel your artistic practice is just a conduit of a healthy kind of rhythm to do outside of work, but that feels like, which one has more priority in terms of like long-term? I enjoy, I enjoy that my full-time job is not directly related to my creative outlets because it allows for me, uh, once I leave that space for the day, I know I can enter into another space. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think being in that bubble of full-time work and then transitioning over, um, there's just a lot more of an energy or an excitement to get to that creative space or that creative time. Um, so that's that's been exciting because in the past, I think my job has related to my creative outlets. Um, and it, it's hard to find the balance between those two and for those two not to mix sometimes. Yeah. What would you say? Cause you're, you're kind of in a, uh, your job reflects more creativity probably than mine. Um, I think it's just also we're in different stages of our career, like you're yeah. fresh out of college. And so I felt like I had a lot more like freelance gigs and like things that I was building on the side just because I had a lot more time on my hands. Yeah. Um, whereas now I know what I like and I know what I don't like doing and I know what is life giving and what is like a, a drain to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I've, I've found a rhythm within my career of like what I do really well is supporting and enabling other creatives and like funding their projects and helping them get to where they need to get. And then having one or two outlets on the side that I enjoy doing. So for a long time, it's been creative mornings. Um, this podcast is like a new thing as well to you. And then, then I just have like random things that I get into, like this whole, like during COVID I've been golfing. Yeah. is like the thing that I've picked up. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of like where so you're, I'm at. you're, you're kind of in the middle of a two plate spinner and a 20 plate spinner. Like, I yeah. feel like you have the things that you hold that are I, going really, yeah. There are things in life that cause you to be a 20 plate spinner. That's true. That's part of adulting. Right? Yeah. 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 And then there's like the things you want to do well. I mean, it, I would say now that there's a lot of things I'm saying no to now. So I can like spend more time with us doing like the podcast or, um, 
you know, doing other things, being more available for other people at yeah. work and stuff. Yeah. And so if, if I had to mark where I'm at right now, it's this experience of letting go of my adolescence and entering <laughs> into this mature, uh, adult. And I'm yeah. trying, I'm trying to like, hold on, uh, to the last 23 years of my life as much as possible. But there's, like you said, yeah, there's just things that require you to be more involved than you'd like to be. Yeah. I mean, they're all good experiences. I think avoiding the burnout, the creative burnout is like figuring out which things kind of give you life that you're kind of working on. And even today, like we, in today's episode, we talk with Daniela um, with women photography and she's a photojournalist. She does all these other things and, and you'll probably share a little bit more about her bio but she's a great example of someone who is splitting, spinning a lot of plates. I said splitting, spinning <laughs> a lot of plates, but still does them really well. And she's figured out how to do it well. So people's bandwidth and capacity is just so much more different. So figuring out your own, I think is, is key. Yeah. And Daniela is just, uh, highly decorated. Um, she, uh, comes from a background of, uh, going to school for architecture and finding her way um, into journalism and just documentary photography. Um, and she just worked her way over time to gain the trust of a lot of different grant programs um, and, and really noble publications. Uh, National Geographic, Pulitzer, Pulitzer Center on Crisis Reporting, um, International Women's Media Foundation. And on top of that, she's running her own um, organization, Women Photograph. Yeah, Daniela, Vietnamese American documentary photographer. She's based out of New Orleans. Um, we just had a really insightful, I'd say, conversation um, with her talking about uh, photography style, talking about process, talking about um, what she's learned um, and really how she owns her own um, her own work. Like she doesn't try to be the, the world's best documented photographer, but she lets the story that she's working on really lead um, her work. Yeah, she's definitely a journalist at heart and she's able to tell stories both with her words and with her images. And I think what's most fascinating in this episode is she has a passion for transparency mm -hmm. and equity. Yeah. And so it's a really insightful conversation where she shares a lot of her experience over the years in the photojournalism world um, and tries to shed light on some of the areas or what we like to say, pull the curtain back on some of the areas that often don't get discussed. Uh, so it was a great conversation. Super excited to have her on. And yeah, let's maybe have her start off with sharing a little bit about her backstory. Hey, creatives. This week's episode is sponsored by our friends at Clever Supply. Clever Supply is a leather goods company that specializes in handmade camera straps for photographers. Their goal is to elevate the shooting experience for photographers with these beautiful handcrafted and durable leather straps that only get better in time. So grab one of these straps and use it just like some of your favorite photographers. Josh, tell them about your experience. You know, I got my strap about two years ago. I put it on my Canon Canonet. Every time I step out, people are always asking where my strap is from. In all honesty, it's, it's easy to take good photos, but it's harder to look good while doing so. Visit cleversupply.co and use the code HYC15 for 15% off your order. Again, that's HYC15 for 15% off your order. Uh, I have wanted to be a journalist since I was about 12 years old or so, I would say. And uh, that started out as me wanting to be a, a writer for newspapers. Um, but my most 
fixated goal was just to get to New York City because that's, you know, in my like teenage mind, that was the place I needed to be to start freelancing and working for newspapers. Um, And so I applied only to universities in New York. Uh, I ended up getting into and going to Columbia. Uh, And I had neglected to, you know, do some basic preliminary research and realized that Columbia did not have either a journalism or a photography undergraduate degree. Um, And so architecture sounded interesting. And it also, I, you know, I have immigrant mother and my parents are a doctor and a lawyer. And so it took a little time to convince them that journalism was a a viable, respectable path. So I kind of like allowed them to think I would be an architect for a while. Um, And, but yeah, you know, the second I got to campus, I joined my college newspaper. I started freelancing for the New York Daily News when I was 19. And by the time I graduated, I, you know, you mentioned the recession. I think I really was lucky because I, I had established myself as a freelancer by the time I graduated. And so I wasn't having to scramble quite as much as some of my peers were. Did you always know with like, wanting to do journalism from an early age that you would have a bent or an interest on the photography side as well? Um, I think it wasn't until college that I really fell into photography. I had wanted to be a writer. I started out writing uh, when I got to The Spectator. And thanks to a friend who had a, a you know minor crisis during midterms, I think John Ashcroft came to speak at campus and they needed someone and everyone was busy studying. Um, and so I grabbed a camera and it was you know as boring an assignment as you could possibly imagine, just a you know man at a podium. But I was totally hooked and I really fell in love with how visceral and democratic photography is as a storytelling medium. And yeah, that's the rest is history. During these uh, younger years, were you, um, and we'll dive into this um, later with some of the work that you're doing now, but did you have this awareness or just this um, idea of how there was a lack of women in photography and in journalism? And, or did that come at later uh, years as you, you know, begin to grow in the industry? I don't know that it necessarily was something that occurred to me at the time when I was starting out because it was just so much the status quo, right? You know, like I was almost always the only woman photographer at city hall press conferences. I mean, to the point that Mara Bloomberg like would call me out and just be like, Oh, it's the one woman, you know? So it, it, it was, it was noticeable, but at the same time it was kind of unremarkable because it was just always what I was dealing with. And you know, by, by and large, I would say that the majority of the New York press corps are my friends. They were hugely supportive. A lot of them took me under their wing. I'm really grateful to, you know, a lot of the sort of older uh, New York Daily News tabloid photographers who really helped me become the photographer I am. Um, but there was also a ton of rampant sexism. And, you know, on top of the fact that it's a hiring equality issue, for me, I see the lack of diversity in photojournalism as an ethical issue in how we tell stories and how we understand ourselves and how we understand the world. So, you know, that that's something that it took me, I think, a much longer time to piece together and be able to really verbalize. Yeah. I want to back up and you have already started talking about, you know, some of the areas you're really involved in. Let's just like give us the list of what organizations are you working with? I know you're like, you're doing lectures. You have like this uh, women photography site. Like, let's just go through and, and like, all, what are all the things you're involved with right now? So I, first and foremost, I'm a photojournalist. That, that is my job in theory in a pandemic. And, what, not so and what does that mean? Explain, uh, explain that, because that's almost like a glorified term now that I'm not sure people actually understand what a photojournalist is. Oh, boy. Um, it takes a lot of different forms. And I think I've, I have built a practice that is where I would like it to be, where I'm mostly working on very slow, long form projects, uh, thanks to grant support. 
So that allows me to be out in the field for months at a time. It allows me to work on my projects for years at a time. I would say that the uh, all the ongoing projects um, that I'm working on right now are at least five years old. Um, so, you know, having the time and space and luxury to really be able to dig into the history and nuance and just the, you know, the relationships of a story, I think are really critical to me. Um, and so I, you know, I work a lot with National Geographic magazine and with a few other, uh, newspapers and magazines that are sort of regular editorial clients, but I'm, I'm independent. I've been independent my entire career. So, um, that also, I think, you know, it's, it's stressful, especially in a pandemic. Um, but it means that I own all my work. It means that I have a huge amount of, uh, editorial oversight with what kind of work I do and where it goes. So, um, yeah. And so either I will partner with an outlet from the beginning, um, you know, this project, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of good examples here. Uh, you know, there's, I've been documenting the Syrian family for five years and looking at how, um, you know, what, what it means to rebuild your life, uh, in the aftermath of war, what it means to do that in the 21st century with access to all this technology when your family is scattered across a continent. Um, so that's been a partnership with Mashable for you know as long as it's existed. And then there are other projects like Signs of Your Identity, which is sort of my longest running project, which has been supported which by- Which is just gorgeous. <laughs> Thank it's just you. like amazing work. Thank you. Um, and that's been supported by the Pulitzer Center and National Geographic Society and Open Society Foundations and uh, Viewfind and Magnum Foundation. And, and so I, you know, will sort of break an individual project into chapters and that way it becomes a little more digestible and I can pitch smaller chunks of the project to get funding. That's cool. Okay. So we've got the photojournalism kind of like, you know, working with different publishers and stuff. What else do we have on your list? And so then in 2017, I founded a nonprofit called Women Photograph um, in response to my my growing angst and rage at my industry um, and the ways in which uh, I saw both women and non-binary photographers being treated and also just the, the ways in which historically we have been shut out of the industry or just the ways in which resources were not being constructed necessarily to intentionally pave a way uh, for a better pipeline. So it started out primarily as a hiring database. I had a few frustrating conversations with photo editors who I would gently interrogate about why they weren't hiring more women. And the answer was essentially, well, we just don't know where to find them. If we knew more women photographers, we would hire them. And so I went back to my Airbnb at this photo festival in France and made a spreadsheet. And you know, now it's 1,300 independent women and non-binary visual journalists based in about 110 countries around the world. And we also are a grant-making organization. We do project grants every year. We have a mentorship program. We have an annual workshop. Um, you know, We're just trying to create as many opportunities and as many ways for fostering community as possible. What are some ways that you've seen um, just that foundation evolve and uh, maybe a way that you didn't imagine. Like I know you went in with the intention of creating this database so that uh, you know women and non-binary photographers would be uh, more easily accessible. But what are some ways that you've just seen it evolve in um, in just different creative outlets? I mean, primarily the thing that I didn't necessarily anticipate or expect, but has been the best part of women photograph is you know I, I made it really as a public facing resource for mm -hmm. photo editors and gatekeepers. And that was my goal to, you know, because I think I see the industry as being sort of divided between people who want to do the work and know that we need to push the industry in a specific direction, but 
photo editors are overworked and have a finite amount of time. And if I can create resources for them and make their lives easier, great. And then there's the other half of the industry where I have to tell them, no, you can't just hire the best photographer for the job. You actually need to think about these things. It is actually critically important. Um, so, you know, that was my number one goal. But I think the internal community that has evolved um, from Women Photograph has been the best part about it. And, you know, when I was coming up in the industry, it really was a space of scarcity, um, where we all believed that there were a finite number of opportunities and assignments and jobs, and therefore we were all in competition with each other, and we had to hide whatever information, knowledge, resources we had from each other. And that that should not be what it needs to be like in, in any creative industry. And so seeing organically members of Women Photograph come together, share contacts, do everything in their power to mentor and help each other out has been really incredible. Yeah, because I, I read in an article somewhere that um, I think as you all were you know, preparing to launch, you would take um, like the top AP photos or just the top photos from these different publications, go through to see how many of them um, had women uh, photographers um, and, and the percentage was just so low. Um, and you all did this like organic data collection over time, um, which is, it's beautiful to see that you were able to um, take that content, pull those numbers, start to build out this data. And then um, over time, you're seeing these percentages grow. You're seeing some of these top pub publications. Uh, the numbers haven't even shifted that much, um, which is interesting within itself. Yeah, I mean, that I'm... I'm a little bit of a nerd. And I also think that, you know, sometimes in order to get there, we just, we need different tactics to get different people's attention in the industry. Right. Right. And for some of them, it, you really do require empirical evidence that there is, you know, it, I should be able to say my experience as a woman in the industry is that I am often the, the only woman. I am often the only person of, of, you know, this demographic marker in a space. Um, but unfortunately, sometimes you need to show people the hard numbers. And so, yeah, that that data has been very effective at convincing certain people, some directors of photography at some of those newspapers, um, that there's a problem and that they need to actually critically think about it and specifically address it. Mm. Okay, photojournalist started a nonprofit and managing and supporting all these women. What else do you have on the list? I feel like this goes on for like hours. <laughs> um, I mean, so great. a sort of partner organization to Women Photograph is Indigenous Photograph. Uh, you know, I'm a Vietnamese American, Jewish American photographer who has spent a lot of the past seven years working in Indigenous communities, um, primarily in North America, but also globally. And there was a point at which editors started coming to me as an expert in indigenous issues. And I thought, well, that's not good or right. Um, and so with a few friends um, who are three incredibly talented indigenous photographers, Josue Rivas, Taylor Irvine, and Brian Adams, uh, we've created a very similar, you know, a database of, I believe now about 75 uh, indigenous photographers globally, um, who, again, is, you know, just a resource for when something like Standing Rock is happening, when someone needs to do reporting in tribal spaces or non-tribal spaces, and you should consider hiring an indigenous photographer anyway. Um, so there's that. Uh, I'm also one of the co-founders of We Women, which is a nationwide project looking at critical issues in the United States through the lens of women and non-binary photographers, uh, specifically through community engagement practices. So we have 19 projects in uh, 19 states. Uh, we're actually about to launch our nationwide exhibit uh, next month, looking at everything from uh, 
the incarceration of LGBTQ plus people to segregation in Chicago to, uh, you know, indigenous identity and blood quantum in Montana. So it's a, this really incredible cohort of artists. Um, I was one of the co-authors of the photo bill of rights, which was something that a group of my colleagues and I uh, came together to create at sort of the intersection of the worst of 2020. Um, you know, it started by us seeing how our colleagues were being treated at the beginning of the pandemic, not being offered hazard pay, not being offered proper PPE by photo editors. And then we saw how photographers were treating other people during the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and we wanted to create something to, uh, you know, standardize and create expectations for ethical, responsible practice uh, as as documentarians, as people who in theory are supposed to be, you know, part of conscience building in, in, you know, the sort of global community. Um, so that, that was a, a labor of love that hopefully has sparked some conversation in the industry. What motivates you to be doing all these different things? Like if there, is there a common thread at the root of it all that like really motivates you to get out of bed and to wrestle with these really tough issues or to support all these different people? Rage. <laughs> Rage. I mean, you know, I Let's say it unpack jokingly, that. But, I mean, it's, you know, it's, I, I think in a very simple way, the intersection of the work that I do as a journalist, the advocacy work that I do within the photojournalism industry is fundamentally about um, both injustice and the ways in which we don't fully understand ourselves and don't have mm. a holistic way of storytelling. Um, you know, a lot of my work looks at the legacy of colonialism and the reasons why we don't necessarily frame specific narratives as the product of Western mm -hmm. colonization. Um, you know, one of the first stories that I ever really worked on long term was looking at the rise of homophobia in Uganda. Mm -hmm. And it was a big story at the time um, that there was this anti-gay law that was working its way through parliament. I and mean, we have 80 countries in the world that in some way criminalize sexual minorities but almost no one was talking about the fact that the introduction of homophobia was through the British penal code when the United Kingdom left and was exacerbated by American evangelical pastors who came over after Idi Amin was deposed. That was just mm -hmm. being left out of the deeper understanding of this conversation. And so to feel this sort of, I don't know, sort of shocked reaction from the West of like, oh, how, how could people be that backwards? When in truth, at the beginning of my time covering that, we still didn't have legalized marriage equality in the United States. You know, it, it felt hypocritical and it also felt very superficial. Um, yeah. So I think... Do you, yeah. Do you feel like your projects have taken on this long uh, form because there's so much to unpack or because um, you're trying to capture as many subjects and stories into a project um, as possible, because I know you shifted from uh, kind of daily newspaper um, and just daily short form storytelling to this long form um, timeline instead. I think it's both. It depends on the project. Um, you know, the thing that I realized fairly quickly about the daily news assignments is that, you know, I, I loved that work. It really made me a photographer. It was great practice. I got to meet New York City in a really deep way, which I loved. Um, but my strength as a journalist is that I'm a deep empath and I'm also someone who can sit down with a total stranger and within five minutes they will be telling me their deepest, darkest secrets and their entire life story. And I, I love doing that and I love connecting with people in really intimate ways. And so it was getting very exhausting to meet a stranger, form that connection, photograph them, and then 30 minutes later have to go on to the next assignment, you know, get back on the subway yeah. and head to the next thing and do that five times a day. Like I found that 
emotionally exhausting. And I realized, no, I, I actually want to like deeply get to know people. And I think, you know, obviously breaking news and daily newspaper assignment work is deeply important. And I respect it hugely. Yeah. But I also think that we have better opportunities to understand stories and to tell more nuanced stories when we have time. Um, you know, journalism, as it loses funding in a lot of different ways, it, the, one of the biggest consequences is that journalists lose time because they can't mm. spend the months in the field they used to be able to. Um, and that has real consequences. You know, I think that that's part of the conversation about why American journalists totally missed the last ele two elections ago was that they, they didn't have the time. They were no longer in the parts of America where they needed to be. Um, so, you know, figuring out how to piece that together in my own practice has been really important. Hmm. And it's, it's, uh, earlier you talked about not having a style or shying, shying away from this idea of style. But, um, I almost think that even in this form of, uh, photographers or storytellers choosing the stories they, uh, can tell more naturally or just tell in a better way, that can almost be a style. Because I know some photographers can't do what you do of being able to connect with someone, stay along and work on a story for five years, um, where for them, they can be in and out in 30 minutes, take a great photograph, and they're on to the next thing, and they love the rush of that. Um, so it's interesting just to see that you found um, kind of your pocket of, okay, this is, this is my long term. This is, where, this is where I really thrive. And, you know, I think we need both, right? I, like, to right, me, yeah. photojournalists exist on the spectrum of, like, frontline conflict, breaking news to social documentary. And when I was young, I wanted, I wanted to be a war photographer because, I don't know, we glamorize that and lionize that for a lot of really broken and terrible ways. But that's right. what I wanted to do and, until I got to a few frontline situations and went, oh, this is not for me. I am not good at this. And also just realized, I, you know, I'm a people person. I'm, I'm good at the intimacy and I, I want to be sort of on the periphery of a lot of the, you know, the conflict and the strife. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, I'm I'm grateful for my colleagues who can do that run and gun, really intense kind of work. But it is not for me. Well, let's let's switch into some of the segments of the podcast. We're going to hit on your creative tools, your process, and then we're going to talk about the most interesting part, which is making money as a creative. And so, let's kick off the first one with uh, creative tools. And I'm just going to run through a couple of uh, you know, choose one or the other. And we'll just kind of see where you land on everything. Let's let's do Canon, Nikon, or Sony. Which one yeah. are you going with? You know, I, I have been a Canon shooter my entire career. And that is mostly because the cameras we had in the Columbia Daily Spectator office were Canons. And so that's what I got used to. And I also, I started out doing a lot of political photography. And for some reason, all of the political photographers shot Canon. So it's, it's not a good reason. I'm used to it. I like it. <laughs> I, I, tell, I tell the exact same story every time. It's, it's yeah, just you what know, it is, yeah. You just get introduced to something and then it becomes comfortable. Um, but the truth is, if I don't have to be using a digital SLR, which, you know, for Nat Geo assignments, I need to. For, you know, commercial work, I have to. But for my own personal work, I often will be using a dinky 1950s twin lens reflex medium format film camera. I use my iPhone a lot. All of Signs of Your Identity, all of my Uganda work is uh, made on an iPhone. Um, so it, it really depends on the project. But I, I'm usually carrying four different types of cameras with me. Four yeah. cameras? Wow, that's that's usually, a big that's a big load. It's well, I mean, it's usually an SLR, a medium okay. format film camera, my phone, which doesn't really count, and then some kind of instant camera because I like being able to give people prints. Yeah, Bethany Molenkoff was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and she was talking about how her iPhone has really become like her second shooter in a lot of ways, and it's yeah. just so fascinating how 
the iPhone has been able to, you know, shoot such great images, but then too, it's introduced so many more people into photography because it's such a, you know, such a powerful device. Yeah. I mean, photography has become so much more democratized than it was 20, 30, 50, a hundred years ago. And I, you know, I hear some people say that that seems bad or strange or scary to them, but I think that's just a great thing that we have more people who could potentially become photographers if that's something they want to do, because, you know, storytelling is the most important thing that yeah. we have for communication. With your, with your, uh, with your film photography, what's kind of the, um, what draws you into the double exposures? Cause I've noticed that, uh, in a, in a couple of your projects. So those are actually all iPhone. Um, those are, those oh. are done. I, so with signs of your identity, I had wanted in a, you know, very art, whatever way wanted to do uh, in camera double exposures. Okay. I, I had that sort of technique in mind. Um, but then I realized that I, you know, I was interviewing boarding school survivors. Um, and then based on our conversation, I would photograph them. And then based on our conversation, I would go to the place where they had attended boarding school and look for okay. traces of memories, traces of the school, things they had talked about. And I realized, A, it felt like a huge gamble to potentially risk destroying these portraits that I had just made of people who were quite old and I might never see right. again. Right. Um, and also, I really, you know, the so I decided, okay, I'll, I'll photograph the portraits, I'll photograph the landscapes, and then I'll combine them afterwards in post. But then I, I wanted to be able to do it immediately. I wanted to be able to go through this process while the conversations were still very fresh. And, I, you know, I was going to have to wait a few weeks to get home and yeah. process my film and start working with it. And so I just ended up right. doing every... I have all that, that yeah. film that I've never used, but I did everything with my iPhone. Awesome. The dynamics what, of photography, yeah. yeah. What apps are you using then on your iPhone? Mostly like for photography. Uh, oh, for, I mean, I, I just use the, the phone camera, which I know okay, is so not... You just size. shoot with a phone camera. I think that's great. I, I don't understand how people are able to do like manual on on the iphone like they'll like oh, change I mean, there are, like the there are tons of apps stuff. yeah and I, yeah. Forget, I think like photo plus was one that was really popular for a while I've, i haven't used any of those because it takes too much i like that i can just swipe up and i have the camera open um but i use uh image blender is what i use for composites um i still use hipstamatic a lot i really use love hipstamatic i think those are basically the the two others that i use most outside of the actual just camera app it's always fascinating to know what's on people's iPhone, like especially when it comes to like shooting and editing photos that they put out. Well, uh, and there's so many fun ones too. Like I haven't, you know, there are a lot that I just have because I like playing around with them and I'm, I don't know if I can even find them because they just take themselves I've, off I've, your phone. I've grown to love the portrait mode. I used to not uh, like the way that it kind of blended in and, and, you know, the shallow depth of field, but I've, I've I've grown to just really love just like you said, swiping up and using uh, the cameras that, that's there and just making incredible photographs. Yeah. And like there, the Huji cam, which had a moment that I still find really fun and like slow shutter that I'll just use to play around at night. You know, there, there are a lot of just fun tools and it's, you know, I think that was one of the reasons why I start using, started using my phone was it just, it felt like play and not work. And now it's also work, but you know, I think there's yeah. still cool opportunities for being creative. Do you have a do you have a process right now for because um, I have this conversation all the time uh, maybe on a more extreme level of you know when Instagram just breaks one day or your Google storage or whatever breaks but do you have a process right now for images that you're or projects you're working on and making sure they get printed or some kind of flow? Wait, Josh, are you saying that you use Instagram as like your storage for your no photos? no 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 I'm okay. saying. You know, as photographers just only upload their work to Instagram and never create, you know, physical physical prints of them. 
Um, I'm pretty good about backing up. You know, I have physical hard drives, uh, cloud backups, but I, I would like to have more physical print uh, archives of my work, and I don't partially because I've just been moving around so much yeah. in the past eight years. Takes but time, yeah. Yeah, I'm hoping that now I can start doing that. Well, on that subject, are Instagram or Twitter? If you could only have oh. one for the rest of your life. Oh, oh, that's that's a very tricky. I mean, yeah. I have to say Instagram just because as a photographer and as a marketing tool, it's very powerful. I'm also very wary of and skeptical of Instagram and Facebook uh, as a corporation. And I, I just, I don't even see them as being parallel. They're, they're two totally different platforms. I use them in completely different ways. So I've I heard know, I Instagram's been, uh, it's been highly used by editors to contact photographers. Have you found that Instagram to be like a, a good, like, I I don't know if the best word is like deal flow for, for jobs or projects, or are you at a place in your career where people are contacting you because they have your information already? Um, I think it's both. I mean, I'm like a relatively high profile person and it's easy to contact me because my email and my phone number are on my website. You got the Um, blue check. (laughs) Uh, but at the same time, yeah, I mean, I've had, uh, I've had agents find me through Instagram. I've had commercial gigs come through Instagram. Um, and it is, kind of sad and depressing that sometimes the, the blue check and the number of followers matter. I really wish that was not the case, but I, I had an application for something within the past year where they actually asked me to put down how many followers I had. And I thought, this is not, this is not a good thing. I don't Oh, like wow. This. That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Ben, you have, you've kind of grown to Twitter being used by photographers, right? Yeah. I mean, Twitter's a little bit more like news, like in the moment. Um, right. So images have been good there. I think the only the only thing, and we've talked about this before in previous podcasts, that I'm hopeful about NFTs in the future is like I see it as a similar to like the JPEG as a, a type of file. Right. Uh, NFT would be a type of file. Right. And what excites me is the ownership that it provides photographers that I that I hope will eventually allow them to always maintain credit of their images when they get published to things like Instagram or Twitter by other people. And then also be able to, I want to see an unsplash.com, which I'm not a big fan of, uh, to be that on this blockchain world where people automatically get the royalties and photo credit whenever it's used somewhere else. Like that's, so I, that's what I hope. And I think Twitter is probably well positioned to do that um, in the future. It's not complicated technology. We could do it. Um, but yeah, I, same, you know, it's, it's very frustrating to see, you know, a, a really amazing independent photographer's image go viral and for them to not even get, a, you know, any kind of credit or acknowledgement, much less financial remuneration. Uh, when you go on shoots, what, what's typically in your toolkit or like what's in your bag? Um, it depends. I usually stick to one digital body and I would say, a zoom lens, a prime lens, uh, depending on the assignment, maybe a telephoto. Um, I will have a road lav mic in case I need to do any audio interviews. Um, I will have, uh, pencils because I learned after working in sub-zero temperatures that pens will freeze and you can't always count on them. And that was a nasty surprise. Uh, what else? What other weird things do I constantly have in my camera bag? Um, always, always granola bars, always a scarf for either wind or sand or modesty or whatever the case may be. Um, 
What's your like one like luxury thing that you always bring with you? Oh, they've gotten really embarrassing. I was just talking to a friend about this. Like, <laughs> I feel like when I was in my twenties, I prided myself on being able to go into the field for two months with a backpack and like one extra shirt and one extra pair of underwear. And that was it. And now yeah. I'm like, I've got a travel candle and bath salts and Earl Grey tea in my suitcase. And it's, it's really embarrassing, but you know, we're getting older. Well, is there, are there any, are there any tools that kind of have, uh, either revolutionizes the way that you've worked or that have just been become really helpful? Um, maybe something that's come out recently or just like a modification that you've made to uh, your equipment? I feel like I do have these things and I'm always really bad at remembering them off the cuff. I mean, I do love those little LED light grids. As someone who never formally learned how to light anything and still doesn't know how to light anything, having just like a little pop of white light um, yeah. I think could be really useful for portraits. Um, always have gaffer's tape, always. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, those little gorilla pods, which can be really useful. Um, if you're just, if you, I, I'm very often traveling solo. I don't want to have a huge tripod with me, but if I need to be able to just jam my camera onto something, uh, those are really great. Um, I'll usually have like, uh, you know, those rain covers stashed away because Canon's not always greatest in, in the wet. Um, yeah. What, what would you tell like your younger self to invest in equipment wise? Like if That's you could go question. back again, like yeah. what would you have told yourself? Like you really should spend some money on this. Oh, interesting. I think I, I think it would be the opposite. I would tell myself not to invest in certain things and just just go simple. You know, I bought these like ridiculous pro photo strobes for like one corporate portrait job I had in London, and now I just have two D ones that I'm never going to use ever again. Um, and you know, the funny thing is when I was, so I, my first like real series of assignments, I covered the 2008 campaign trail when I was a senior in college. Um, I did, you know, the New Hampshire primary and South Carolina and Pennsylvania and New York. And I ended up at the DNC and the RNC, but I was, I, you know, I already look like I'm 18. And so when I was 18, I looked like I was 10. Um, and I was on, you know, I was with a bunch of White House News Corps photographers who had been doing this for years and years and were not like super friendly and super welcoming. And so I spent way more money than I should have to get a full frame, but out of date Canon body so that I mm. looked like I had the big square Canon camera, even though it wasn't even as good as the, you know, whatever, like 30D that I was using at the time. Um, because that's how badly I was trying to like, look like I was a professional who fit in and belonged there. So, you know, probably wouldn't have wasted those $2,000 or, you know, whatever I'd scraped together for my bartending money at the time. Um, but yeah, you know, I really, I'm not a gearhead. I think that there are a lot of things that we can do with relatively little. And I, you know, I always encourage students to figure out what, what do you need? What's the minimum that you need? Because you unless you're doing hyper specific, hyper technical work, like camera trapping or underwater photography or stuff, mm -hmm. in like really extreme climates, you, you can get by with pretty basic stuff. And especially with all these mirrorless cameras that are coming out now, if you're not doing sports, if you're not doing like F1 photography, it's amazing what you can do with some, some pretty reasonably priced gear. Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe we can, I know we've talked about tools and maybe we can transition our way over to process. Um, and, I uh, I know you've talked a lot about this, and um, hopefully you're not burnt out from talking about it, but your signs of your identity project. Uh, maybe let's just set the scene real quick for how the project came about, um, maybe what you learned or what was the surprise during the project, and then what's evolved from the project um, now. 
Sure. So, I mean, the entire project was a fairly serendipitous accident. Um, I had, because of the work in Uganda, looking at uh, the rise of homophobia, I had done this small project on how when you criminalize sexual minorities, there is often a public health consequence, um, Mm. often a spike in HIV numbers. I ended up at this HIV, this AIDS conference in Melbourne in 2014. And while I was there, I read this UN AIDS report that had just pretty much a single throwaway line that referenced the fact that First Nations Canadians have one of the fastest growing rates of HIV of any demographic in the world. And I am not a public health expert, but that sounded bananas to me because Canada has nationalized healthcare and they have, you know, they have much better systems in place than the United States does. And yet there was this full on epidemic where in a, you know, in a 10 year period, HIV rates went up by about 25% in indigenous communities in Canada. And so I wrote a grant application to the Pulitzer Center who had been supporting a lot of my projects at that point. And I spent a month interviewing HIV-positive First Nations people, you know, across three provinces in Canada. And almost every single person I met and talked to in some way referenced their time in Indian residential schools. Mm. And I had never heard of that before. I knew nothing of this 120-year-long system that originated in the United States and then came to Canada. Um, And I was just horrified that I had absolutely no awareness of it, that a lot of the white Canadians I met also had no awareness of it. And I also was starting to realize that the work that I was doing was just, you know, the small symptom of a much larger project. And again, it's sort of my general quest as a journalist to think about what are what are the root structures in place that are actually the cause of these systemic issues that we talk about, that of these crises of traumas. Yeah. It's not ever about the trauma and the crisis itself, right? There's always something that comes first. There's always some greater context. Um, and the work that I was doing at the time, which none none of it got published, I essentially came home because almost a majority of HIV transmission in indigenous communities in Canada is through injection drug use that is linked to the opi- opioid crisis in North America. Um, and so those those are the images that I made. And I got mm-hmm. home and realized this is bad journalism. This doesn't advance anything. This does not create greater understanding. This does not it's just, it doesn't accomplish anything. It's it's not going to be productive or useful or good. And so I, I basically had to reach out to the Pulitzer Center and say, hey, I'm so sorry. I messed up. I thought this was the story. This is actually the story. I need wow. to go back. Can I have some more money? And thankfully, because I already had an established relationship with them and they trusted me, um, they said, oh, okay, go go do whatever crazy art project you're proposing. And it, it worked out. And, you know, it's one of the projects I'm most proud of. But, you know, I always yeah. hold that up as an example of when I say, like, time is so necessary in the journalistic process. Mm. Because if I'd been on assignment for a magazine, I would have had to come home, file that work, it would have been published. And that would have been probably the end of my relationship to not only the individuals and those images, but to the history, to the context, I wouldn't have probably been welcomed back into that community had I tried to go back. Um, so, yeah. you know, maybe, especially when... Yeah. yeah, and maybe dive into the process of one, connecting with this community and setting the project up for the uh, indigenous peoples that you were photographing. How do you how do you tell the story of what you're trying to tell and, and kind of set up the scene for them? Well, you know, the way I see it is that photography is an incredibly powerful tool, but it also has its limitations. And I was returning as a journalist trying to tell a story about something that stopped in the 1990s. And so I I couldn't photograph the actual schools anymore. I only could see and understand what a devastating long-term effect 
the school system had on indigenous communities. And so the question is, how do you take conversations about things like intergenerational trauma and cultural genocide? And how do you show that in a photograph? How do you, how do you convey that in an image? And so for me, that, that became the composite because it was about showing memory and, and showing the things that we pass from generation to generation. And so it became this composite of the portraits with the sites of the boarding schools themselves. And that felt like, to me, the most honest, most true way of, of visualizing the story in a way that my audience could understand. And from a slightly Machiavellian standpoint, it also felt like a, a way to force people to slow down and engage because it would be something a little different that they weren't used to. And it would, you know, I think our brains work in a way so that, you know, we see a double exposure and we think we have to stop and work it out and figure out what we're looking at. Um, so, you know, in an era where we consume more imagery in a day than was produced in, you know, the entire year of 1950, um, mm. you know, how do you, how do you get people to actually stop and process a photograph? And I think that's, that's also yeah. a part of what I'm thinking about a lot as well. Yeah. Was the editing choice of black and white kind of fit into that box as well of, of helping people to stop and pause and sit with the images? Yeah, I think, you know, I love working on composites and color as well, but sometimes they do, they almost become a little too fantastical um, just because you've got just so much going on. Um, and I really, I wanted this to be simple. And, you know, also since this is a callback to people who are talking about experiences that primarily happened in the 50s and 60s, um, it felt just like a, a cleaner, clearer aesthetic to, to use black and white. Yeah. What have you learned over the years from telling these stories or figuring out your creative process or like uh, your eye for photography? Um, I think most of all that you're always going to get something wrong and that your biggest responsibility as a journalist is to listen and to make sure that you are receptive to criticism and that you are open to hard conversations because it's really easy for us. I think as an industry, we have often tried to position ourselves as the experts in the stories that we document. And we're not, right? We're the people we photograph, the people we interview, they are the experts in their own lives and their own experiences. Um, and we're limited by that, especially in an industry where so many of us work as outsiders in the communities that we go into. So, you know, figuring out how to critically question process and intent and the ethical codes and standards that we hold ourselves to, I think, is, is the most important thing for me. Yeah. As someone who uh, travels for works in different projects, how do you find your, how do you ground yourself um, in the place that you're in, in that moment, instead of kind of, uh, I don't know if you find yourself thinking about the next project or where you have to travel next, but how are you, how do you find yourself being present in that moment and present in that project? Yeah. Cause there's almost like a tension between, you know, parachuting in, but then also trying to have empathy and connect in a deep level, but meet the deadline. Like there's so many like constraints and pressures. Right. Like how, how do you, how do you live with those tensions and, and, and what have you learned from all of that? Um, well, okay. So th there are a couple different questions in there. I, I'm <laughs> yeah. really terrible. I'm trying to be better about it, but it is hard. I, you know, I essentially have two full-time jobs and women photograph is a 30 hour a week full-time job and being a photojournalist. Yeah, I don't know how you job. do it. I'm over here just um, like amazed by all the things you do. And so, I mean, and it, you know, it has definitely impacted my photographic practice and made me less present. And I am trying to figure out how to work through that and sort of create better boundaries between those two things, because it's, it's not good for either. Um, if I can't like really be in the space that I'm supposed to be working in. Um, and then, you know, in, in terms of just continually thinking about how to, you know, I, 
I talk a lot to, in particular, young women photographers who are just coming into the industry and they're often crippled by, oh no, like I need to make sure that I'm doing this ethically and I have to make sure that I'm doing this right and what happens if this goes wrong? And I think, you know, it is always good and important to question the way in which you're moving through the world, especially as a journalist. I think that's really important. And I become very suspicious of people who think that their practices are perfect and amazing and everything Mm -hmm. is going really well because I think they're not being self-critical enough. But I think it's also a very delicate balance, right? You can't allow yourself to to melt into anxiety and then not do anything. You know, we Mm -hmm. still, we need storytellers. I think that a fully healthy visual journalism community is made up of evenly both insiders and outsiders. And unfortunately, historically, it's been almost exclusively outsiders. And so we're in this really important period of over overcorrection. And so I think if editors are going, you know what, this is a story about Latinx people, we have to find a Latinx photographer. I think that's really important and really good. And maybe eventually we will get to a point where we can, you know, be a little more evenly dispersed. Um, but yeah. No, I, I think, you know, I think questioning is good. I think it just, it can't stop you from doing the things that are important to you, especially if you're doing it with, with the right intention and, and the right care. Yeah. I'm always curious to know with, because uh, one of the things I enjoyed, I took a photog- photography class in high school and we did, uh, uh, we would do critiques. And at the time, you know, the critiques weren't high level. It was, I was always itching for, you know, more critique. It was always something like, I wish you cropped it more, like you could have edited differently. But do you find yourself um, at this stage in your career, do you still make space to be critiqued? Or like, how are you allowing yourself to grow and and, and sit in the um, advice and critiques of others? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we have to. You You cannot stop learning and you cannot stop welcoming criticism as an artist, whether that's on the technical or ethical or process side. Um, and so, you know, I have a very close community of peers who I really trust. And we turn to each other for, you know, I literally was just talking to someone this morning about an ethical question that had come up with the story she's pitching. And, you know, I I think having that foundation of people who you trust and who you know will be honest with you um, is really necessary. And yeah, I mean, you know, on the technical and aesthetic side, like, I don't really care. Like, I am absolutely not the best photographer in the business. I definitely do not produce the most technically proficient images in the business. I'm okay with that. But if, if anyone has questions or wants to talk about the ethics and my process and the ways in which I work, I will always make time for that because I think that is one of the most critically important things we can focus on. Yeah. And you said earlier, you allow the story to lead and not necessarily the medium that's used. And I think that gets lost in speaking from a younger perspective um, here of just, uh, there's always this pressure of you have to create the perfect image and the perfect story, but you no. lose you lose the story within uh, kind of creating this perfect image. So um, I think that's really important just for people to hear of like, let the story lead uh, whatever medium follows or tells that story best, you know, um, you know, move forward with that. Yeah. Also, I think there's kind of a fallacy to the perfect, beautiful aesthetic image. Like it's nice, but you know, unfortunately we're learning more and more that some of those perfect images that we've kind of held up as the pinnacle of photojournalism were maybe staged or maybe were created by deeply unethical individuals who had very harmful ways of moving through the world. So, you know, that it's nice to have a gorgeous photograph, but to me, that's almost, it's the least important thing about photography. If you're, if you're working with good intentionality, if you're working ethically, if you are telling stories that you believe to be important, you can figure out how to make the images visually appealing later. That's, that's the sort of least of my concerns. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, what inspires or challenges kind of your creativity today? Like, what are things that really get you jazzed or excited or motivates you outside of the rage? It's, it's a lot for me. <laughs> um, I mean, I would say it's, it's my peers. You know, I grew up because I didn't traditionally come into photojournalism. I didn't study it. I didn't really have any mentors. Um, you know, a lot of the people I really most look up to Shout and admire. Um, you know, Natalie Kazar, who was my partner, partner in crime for so many things. Um, India Beale, who is a photographer I, I love and respect. Hannah Reyes Morales, who I think has like the most beautiful practice. Uh, Bethany Mollenkoff, you know, I, Taylor Irvine. There are so many. I think I just named a bunch of women. Um, but, you know, I think... That's very on brand, though. It is. You know, I, uh, I, I do. If look you like, came out and said like six guys, I'd be like, well, okay, oh, okay, we might have yeah, to go, we gotta go out. back. <laughs> you, you don't need to worry about that. But I mean, I respect my male colleagues, but you know, um, but yeah, I, th- I think seeing how the practices of photographers I love and admire, and who are in many ways, you know, it's sort of the same point in their profession and their careers as me. Seeing how they're evolving their practice, seeing how they are dealing with the same challenges, uh, you know, problem solving, uh, as I am, I think that to me, that's the most inspiring. Um, and that always pushes me to also keep thinking, okay, what, what's, what's next, what's the next thing that I'm going to try? Because I think the worst thing we can do as creatives is stagnate. Um, and I, again, I think a lot of people think of that in an aesthetic way. And I really mean it in a sort of an ethical and engagement way of, you know, what, what is journalism now and what can it be? What should it be? Hmm. I love that distinction because like creativity within the constraints of like ethics, I think is really important because sometimes the creativity is just a- applied to aesthetics, but like this, con- this creative constraint of like, how do- can I create something beautiful within the constraints of doing it right? Right. In the sense of honoring all the people who are involved and the places in which we step into to create that. Yeah. And I just think there are so many ways in which we can push those boundaries, you know, for, even just the notion and the language of photography is, you know, we, we take a photograph, we have a subject, I think, you know, thinking about photography is something that has the potential to be collaborative, you know, we, it's even, it's professional practice with newspapers that when you photograph someone for an assignment, you are not allowed to let them see the image. And I understand for very pragmatic on deadline reasons why that's the case. And so I would never violate that while on assignment for a newspaper, but for my own projects, I will absolutely sit down with someone I am photographing and let them review every single image I've made. And if they see something that feels wrong or feels bad or is something they don't want the world to see, I will absolutely respect that because that relationship matters to me more than whatever image I could potentially publish in a magazine. So the 1000 likes on Instagram. Yeah, you know, so that like those considerations thinking about like, why, why are these rules in place? Why have they been in place? What do we get to keep? And what do we need to change? I think that's, that's, those are the conversations that I love having the most. Yeah, I have one more question on the process side. Um, Let's talk about the trends or the things that just like really grind your gears that you're seeing within the photo world right now. Oh, that you try to avoid yourself. I'm so negative in so many ways about, you know, yeah, I, this I, is probably the one time I'm tapping into the rage. Let's see if there's any rage <laughs> around the, the trends. Thing, I mean, I don't have, I don't have much rage when it comes to the making of photography itself. Again, as long as it's in the confines of being done ethically. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I think in general, social media has not been great 
for, you know, it's, it's this funny sure. thing of at the beginning, I think it was amazing for, again, democratizing and connecting people and editors had a way to find new photographers um, that was a lot easier for, you know, say a photographer who didn't have access or the knowledge to set up a professional website. So I think that's really cool. But I think it's also done some really bad things to how we present ourselves, how we tailor and curate um, how other people perceive us. So, you know, I think all of these conversations that we're having more broadly about sort of the cost of all this time we're spending on screens and what it means to be so deeply engaged with social media. It's not great for us, but it also, it feels like a very necessary evil and I, you know, I'll keep using yeah. it. So. Do you, when you're working with your images and post, um, do you use presets or are you kind of editing each images, each image um, in its own uh, style? Yeah, she's bought I, a couple of my presets for. And ben, you can you, go to my no, link. There is no way. No, I'm just have, kidding. I don't oh have any presets. <laughs> I am again. Didn't study photography. Never, right. never went. To, never took a class. Um, I am terrible. And I also I started at the New York Daily News, where we would just file raw images. I so I'm really bad at post processing and color correcting. I yeah. feel like I have a pretty distinct style with with scanned film that I feel really comfortable with. Weirdly, yeah. that feels better to me than processing digital images and I can't explain why. Um, but no, I'm not, you know, I'll, I'll use Lightroom for some light tweaks, but I'm, yeah. and I can't tell if this is an excuse or if I genuinely believe this, but what I say for explaining why I don't post-process heavily and why I don't know anything about lighting is that in a lot of regards, I am a purist. I, you know, I'd like to be as minimal as possible. Yeah. I like to interfere aesthetically with the scene as little as possible. It, took a long time for me to even be comfortable directing people for portraits. Um, so I think in some small ways, I have that very pure news photographer background. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm terrible yeah. at post-processing. <laughs> yeah, no, and I think that's a universal kind of uh, approach for a lot of people. And again, it's it's probably, again, one, uh, one of those photography things where we try to box each other into well, do you like do you like presets or do you not like presets? Do you like Instagram? Do you like you know these different things? No, I've never um, used a preset. <laughs> That's a great flex. I love that. Is it or is it just yeah. I'm old and I don't know how to do these things? I, who knows? That's okay. I think it's like you know, there's there's not a right answer in a lot of these things. I think that's what's really great. I think you have a great eye. Um, not only for like finding great stories, but then you do have a great eye for photography as well too. Um, I think the technical stuff, you know, it's like you said, it's all getting democratized. Like people are learning on their phones how to take images now. Yeah. Um, versus like having to sign up for their newspaper or being at an event and they needed somebody to take a photo. Uh, so I think that's really exciting. Well, let's talk about the, you know, this whole podcast is about pulling back the curtain a little bit and, you know, we don't want to sound gauche or anything, but let's talk about making money. And for the people who are like, you know, Josh is a great example of like, I'm going to quit my job and go full time okay. photojournalist <laughs> because I'm so inspired at this point. Like what, how much do photojournalists make and is it worth it? Um, so I would say in the last 15 years that my annual income has ranged from 40,000 to 150,000. And there is no predictability to that. What a range. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, wow. It, which, you know, I, it's, it's not great. Um, and right, I think yeah. the thing that I say to young photographers is I would never want to be a staffer. I think partially because of the ownership issues. I always want to own every single image that I make. And so I've always wanted to be independent. But you have to have nerves of steel and a very specific personality to not go crazy. Because there's mm. a lot of feast or famine 
there's a lot of sitting around going, oh my God, what do I do? How do I get an assignment? How do I get this thing out the door? How do I get this pitch to be accepted? Um, and that can be hugely anxiety inducing. And so if you know that, if you know that you are not going to be able to deal with that without going nuts, then, you know, I think it's important to think about, all right, what, like, what are other ways in which I can build out the business? And I think truly every single freelance photographer I know has some sort of side hustle. You know, I do a lot yeah. of teaching on the side. I, I think the best thing you can do is find the side hustle that kind of dovetails with what makes you feel good with what you enjoy, with what feels enriching to you. Teaching for me is perfect because I get to inspire rage in young students, which I love. And then I also get to figure out new ways to talk about and explain my work, which is helpful for me in my process of writing grant applications. So that, you know, that's been something that has really become a huge part of my practice recently. But when I was younger, I was a bartender. I was a freelance web developer. I tutored kids in high school chemistry. You know, I've, I've done everything. And I think there are, we really stigmatize often in the industry, people who photograph weddings or high school portraits or whatever the mm. case may be. But you know, pay your bills, pay your rent, and then use that yeah. money to go work on your passion projects. So yeah, and maybe that answers because I was going to ask, where do you find yourself kind of investing back into yourself and your business? Because I, I think you mentioned uh, you don't spend a lot on equipment. You kind of have your four cameras that you use for your assignments, but where do you find yourself kind of spending or investing money back into yourself uh, most often? Um, I mean, the best thing that I ever did was find assistance for myself um, to take some of the tedium out of my day to day to not have to worry about errands that someone else very easily can do to, you know, just give myself a little more time with my process, my thoughts with creativity and not have to worry about, you know, photographing these 300 receipts that I've just brought back from Idaho or whatever. Um, so for me, that's been the biggest fight, you know, I think for the past six years or so, I've pretty much constantly had at least one assistant. Um, and that has been the the greatest investment that I think I've personally made. Got to work smart. Yeah. Yep. Can't do, I, yeah, can't I do everything. I think we're finding that more and more as we, uh, you know, talk to different people on this podcast, a theme that comes up more and more is like, oh yeah, my assistant or someone mm -hmm. like a manager that I work and with. My so agent. This, yeah. Yeah. Collaborative effort. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, you know, we, I, I love to micromanage. I am a control freak. And so giving away some of that control is difficult for me. Um, but, you know, figuring out how to do that uh, and relieving, especially because, again, like independent photographers have to be so many things. You have to be an accountant. You have to, now I'm failing to think of all the things. You know, you have to be able to market yourself. You have all these little tasks that are part of running your own business. Um, and so being able to offload some of those tasks onto another human uh, who maybe has better skills in those areas than you do uh, can be really beneficial. Yeah, I, I've always found that for money to be very taboo within the creative industry. It's like, you know, you don't want to like, you don't want to make too much money because then you feel like a sellout, but then you also don't want to like starve yourself uh, and, and, and have a poor view of money. And it's always like this pendulum swing between the two, but it seems like we're always trying to find this balance is the ideal. How have you kind of like, what's been your philosophy around money and being creative and, and not trying to like fully sell out, but also like not trying to like just get by. Okay. Well, before I get to that, I do want to talk about the fact that I think in our conversations we're having about building a more inclusive industry, the thing that we do not talk enough about or honestly about is money. And the mm -hmm. fact that the barriers to entry to become a photojournalist are extremely high. And if you are someone who is graduating with a ton of college debt, if you are someone who has parents that are depending on you, if you're someone who doesn't have intergenerational wealth, which many, many documentary photographers do, 
how are you going to invest $10,000 into all the gear that you need just to get started? You can't, mm -hmm. right? And so it is an extremely classist industry. It has kind of become even more classist in that sense, I think, as we've gone through recessions, as we're dealing with a pandemic, people who cannot afford to be freelancers are leaving. Um, and so having honest conversations about what it takes to survive. And also, you know, I think acknowledging, you know, like I grew up my dad is a doctor, my mom is a lawyer, I grew up with a huge amount of financial privilege, I didn't have to assume any financial debt when I graduated from college, I started working when I was a student. That's, that is a really important ground base that I had that a lot of photographers don't have access to. Um, mm. And so figuring out how we can sort of destigmatize and have more honest conversations about what it takes, and then how we can level the playing field and how we can make photojournalism more accessible for people who don't necessarily have access to those things, I think is really critical. Back to your question. Um, <laughs> I don't I don't really like the selling out uh, sort of framework for thinking about commercial work. I say that I also am someone who is not attracted to commercial work and barely does commercial work. And I have ethical problems with a lot of different corporations and I don't want to work with them. But I also don't see it as selling out. And I do not judge any colleagues who do that work. Because again, I think whatever you need to do to survive and make time for your own practice is fair game. And I think the problem is, you know, sometimes people get sucked into the commercial work and they realize, oh, I can make a lot of money doing this. And then they forget about the work that really matters to them in their soul. And, you know, that's their choice again. And if they're happy, great. Um, but I think as, you know, visual storytellers, if your goal is to be a documentary photographer, if your objective is to be a photojournalist, you have to make and save space to do the work that you feel is sacred. Um, and that, you know, that for me, that's always the objective and whatever I was doing is, uh, you know, 20 something to make sure that I could save some money away and go travel and go work on a project that I thought was intriguing or, or might lead to something really important. Um, you know, it, it all was fair game. So who pays well out there? I mean, you know, Nat Geo is really, it's the only outlet left that will send you into the field for months. And so, you know, I, I think it's, and it's not just that, I think the incredibly collaborative nature of the way that you work with editors um, at the Geographic is really appealing to me. So they're, they're basically my primary editorial client at this point. Um, and beyond that, I'm almost exclusively pursuing grants. So uh, mm. whether it's from, it's, you know, National Geographic Society, which is sort of the nonprofit arm of Nat Geo, um, or, you know, I just, uh, became a catchlight fellow for 2021. Yeah, congratulations. Is, thank you. Um, that, you know, takes some of the financial strain of the past year and a yeah. half. Um, so Catchlight's yeah. also an awesome organization for photojournalists. They are, they're oh. really wonderful and they support incredible people. And I'm very honored to be in that cohort, um, of oh. three artists who I really admire and respect. Mm. Maybe talk a little bit about like, I know you and Natalie Kizar is a friend of the pod, um, have been doing some classes or some lectures on grant writing or just having more discussions around that. Like maybe, maybe share a little insight that y'all have around grant writing for photographers. Um, well, so it's a, it's this really robust two day class that we teach. I think we're doing it one more time in the fall. Um, and it's everything on business practices in photography. And it's from our amassed 25 years worth of experience in the field. She, looks at things more from the framework of being primarily an assignment photographer who is working for the New York Times Magazine and Rolling Stone and Time and Nat Geo. I'm looking at it more from the perspective of someone who goes after grant funding. Um, and we're sort of together piecing together this, like, these are all the things that we wish we had known or had someone had taught us when we were just starting out. Um, 
I think my, I mean, the, the two, the, the two giveaways that I'll use to tease the class. One is always ask for more money. Whenever you're negotiating, whenever someone is reaching out to you to license something, to publish a story of 20 images, whatever number they give you, you should always ask for more money. And the worst thing that happens is they say, no, sorry, that's all we have in the budget. But the amount of money that I left on the table early on in my career, because I didn't realize that I could ask for more money. It was just incredible. Um, so is there a, is there a, uh, example of when a number was pitched to you, you asked for more money and then you got like, what's the, what's the range if you, if you had to just guess or pull back one example? Um, so I think the thing that, I mean, it honestly, the pandemic has been a huge driver in that for me. I'm already, because it, to make it a gendered thing, I think often women are socialized to maybe just be like, yes, that's great. Thank you. Right. Ah. Yeah. Um, but during the pandemic, I, you know, I, it was hard and I was not able to work and I, I had, you know, one month long assignment. But other than that, I was mostly doing teaching and speaking gigs. And I have a pretty fixed rate for what I charge, you know, universities and classrooms. And often if they ask, I will do it for free because I love teaching. And if it's a public school, it's a good cause. Um, but a few private universities had reached out to me to do talks and I tripled my rate because it was a pandemic because it was the mm, only yeah. income I was going to make that month and it would actually get me through that month. And they all agreed. And they, you know, even though it was a talk over zoom instead of them, but you know, the argument is, well, you, you would have flown me out to your university. You would have put me up for a night. You would have had all these other expenses. So how about $6,000 instead of $2,000 and yeah. uh, actually worked. Uh, where can people find you and, and just kind of stay up to date with uh, things that you're working on and projects being released? Um, Instagram and Twitter are probably the best spaces. So I'm D Zaltzman, D-Z-A-L-C-M-A-N on social media. Um, and my website is uh, dan.iella.net, which is where you can find uh, workshops and prints and Patreon and links to everything. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks again, Daniela. Yeah. Thanks both. It was so nice talking with you. And before you leave, do us a big favor and leave us a review or share this week's episode with your friends. It helps us keep the lights on. And if you're curious, our original music was made by local producer Shem. And our awesome album art was designed by our good friend, Tyler Deeb. We'll see you next week.